Preaching is always a great privilege, and so anytime you get to open up God's Word and, and talk to God's people, that's, that's a blessing and an honor, but it's a special privilege this evening because I finally get to say some things to Dave that I've always wanted to say publicly and tell him what I really think about him, and uh, it's all good things, though. Uh, I am so glad that uh, your pastor reached out to me. We've developed a, a good friendship and um, enjoy coming here. To Colleen, and it's a privilege to talk to you all here at Grace Bible Church, so thank you for having me. Uh, before we go much further, let's begin in a word of prayer. Heavenly Lord, from heaven you came and sought us. You came while we were rebels, while we were sinners, while we were running away from you, chasing all sorts of other lowercase g gods. Gods of work, relationships, experiences, whatever it may be. But you loved us enough to come after us, Lord, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for your fascinating love that is so big that it goes after all kinds of people. Not just one particular kind of people, but everyone that you've made. You pursue all who you have called. And so we thank you for your gift of grace, and we know that gathering here this evening is not a privilege that other Christians around the world get to do, at least not without persecution. So we ask for attentive hearts this evening, Lord, and we pray that you would speak. Speak through me and man of unclean lips. Please, Lord, take a burning coal from your altar and Touch it to my lips that I might proclaim your truth, especially regarding such sensitive topics as diversity in the church. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please turn to Galatians. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, continuing the series that you all have been going through. That's Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll be reading out of the ESV version. Let's hear what God has to say. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. So the title of this sermon is The Gospel and Diversity. The Gospel and Diversity. And right off the bat, I want to explain a little bit about this term diversity, because, of course, diversity can encompass all kinds of things. Diversity could be age diversity. Diversity could include geography. Diversity could include language. It can include any kinds of things. But I want to focus on diversity specifically in its racial and its ethnic implications, racial and ethnic diversity. And I do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the passage sort of invites you to think of it that way. 
It's talking about relationships between Jews and Gentiles, which is not only a religious distinction, but also an ethnic and a cultural distinction as well. So we want to focus on racial and ethnic diversity for that reason that we see in the passage. But also, want to focus on racial and ethnic diversity because of the state of the church in the United States. I want to start out with some statistics regarding race and religion in our country. So in 2011, minority births outnumbered majority births for the first time in U.S. history, meaning uh, ethnic minorities were born at a faster rate than white babies for the first time in our country's history. And that's going to rapidly change the racial and ethnic makeup of our country, according, uh, depending on which sources you go to, between the year 2040 and 2050, uh, whites, who are 62% of the population currently, will no longer be in the majority. Hispanics will be the largest racial and ethnic group, and whites will, for the first time in our country's history, be the minority. The nations are literally coming to our doorstep, and yet our churches don't reflect this, by and large. There's an author and a pastor and a church planter named Mark de Yamaz who studies multi-ethnic churches pretty widely, and he estimates that there are about 13.7% of U.S. churches. Now, that includes Catholics, that includes Protestants, that includes mainline. He estimates that 13.7% of U.S. churches could be termed multi-ethnic. Now by multi-ethnic he means uh, no single racial or ethnic group is, is more than 80% or it, the congregation is at least 20% made up of racial or ethnic minorities of some sort. 13.7%. Now that actually represents progress because 10 years ago that number was closer to 7% so it's almost doubled yet by and large our churches remain racially and ethnically homogenous. If we look at one specific racial group, African Americans, and we narrow it down from all U.S. churches and we talk about evangelical Protestant churches, that would be churches like Grace Bible, that would be churches like, like the Baptist Church. If we look at evangelical Protestant churches, African Americans make up just 6% of those churches. Our churches tend to be monochrome in a lot of ways. What I want to say tonight is that this is a gospel issue. We can't simply explain it by geography or history or preference. That has something to do with it, but surely there's more. As a church, we have intentionally and unintentionally, personally and institutionally, set up barriers to the gospel such that we don't integrate as much as we could. We as sinful human beings are constantly adding work to this pure, simple doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. And we see an example of this in the passage. In this case, Peter and the Jewish Christians, they're adding a work to justification by faith. In this passage, it's circumcision, but it still goes on today, although in different forms. We're going to highlight three things we learn about the gospel and diversity in this passage. First of all, we're going to learn that diversity reveals the gap between principle and practice. Secondly, diversity shows who you really fear. And third, 
Diversity is a gospel issue. Diversity reveals the gap between principle and practice. It shows who you really fear, fear, and diversity is a gospel issue. First of all, a little context. If you've uh, been here through Pastor Dave's series, then you know that all throughout chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 up to the 10th verse, Paul has been going to great pains to prove that he is a genuine, bona fide, capital A apostles on par with all the other apostles in all the other apostles in Jerusalem. And he actually does it. He convinces the other apostles that he's preaching the gospel and he's been commissioned by Christ just as they have. And we know this from chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, meaning Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. To paraphrase these verses, it's all good. Peter, Paul, the other apostles, they're on the same page. Then we get to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now we got to understand that the setting here in Antioch is critical. Let's think about Antioch. So the church has, has just gone through the events of the crucifixion and the church has been birthed in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital city for their religion. But now the gospel is spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth and it's reached Antioch, which is quite different from Jerusalem. Antioch has a large Jewish population, but it's mostly Gentile. And now Gentiles are coming to faith. They're starting to become Christians too. And you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians mixing in the same congregations. You've got multi-ethnic church in Antioch. Antioch is also the first missionary sending church. They send out Paul and Barnabas to the other places to minister and proclaim the gospel to the other Gentiles. Antioch is the first place where Christianity is mixing among different people groups and not just the Jews. And now they're starting to face different issues. How do we get along with one another? How do we get along with people who are so different from us and from whom we've been separated for so long? And it's into this setting that, that Peter comes. Now think about Peter. You know, his name means rock. And he was given that name by Christ himself. Back in Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, it says, this is Jesus talking to Peter. It says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is Peter. You know, there's 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 the first Baptist church and there's the first Presbyterian church. Well, Peter's from the first church, Jerusalem, and he's the senior minister. And he's not just any apostle, he's Jesus' right-hand man. He's part of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He's the rock. It's this Peter who goes to Antioch to visit the saints up there. And when he gets there, he starts eating with the Gentiles. Now, you know that Jews were never supposed to associate with Gentiles. Their religious and ceremonial law said that they had to separate from pagan unbelievers. They weren't permitted to have fellowship with them. 
And you know that in the Bible, when you eat with someone, it's not just sharing food. It means much more than that. Eating with someone is a sign of, of friendship, of, of solidarity, of acceptance. So by Peter eating with the Gentiles, he's saying, you're one of us and I'm one of you. But then he withdraws. He doesn't continue to do that. But Peter knows better. You see, Peter, more than anyone, knows the principle that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, these ceremonial laws that say you can't associate with the Gentiles have been overshadowed by the cross. Jesus has built a new and living temple and brought together a new people united by the Holy Spirit through faith in him. And Peter knows this better than anyone. Remember back in Acts chapter 10. Peter's sitting on a roof one day and he falls into a trance. And he gets this, this vision of a sheet descending from heaven. And on that sheet are all kinds of animals that the Jews were never supposed to touch or eat or, or be associated with because they were unclean. And Peter hears this voice, the voice of God, and it says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, says this. He says, oh, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then the voice comes to him a second time, and the voice says to him, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then, through a series of events, Peter ends up at this man Cornelius's house. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. And Gent Jews and Gentiles aren't supposed to associate, but Peter not only associates, he goes into Cornelius's house. And he not only goes into Cornelius's house, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. And he not only preaches the gospel to Cornelius, but Cornelius believes along with him and his whole household. And when Peter witnesses these Gentiles putting their faith in Christ and, and the Holy Spirit coming upon them, he says this. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter knows the principle. He knows that the gospel leads to racial and ethnic diversity. If you gave him a paper and pencil test, he would ace it. He could teach the class. He knows it better than any one of us today. And yet he withdrew. You see, there was a gap between the principle that Peter believed and the practices that he lived out. I have the privilege and honor of doing this kind of work, talking about race and diversity within the church in a lot of different places. And I've encountered many different pastors and church leaders and, and church members, all very well-intentioned, but they say something like this. They say, you know what, as long as we preach the gospel, diversity will happen. We don't have to do anything special. We don't have to do any tricks or, or adapt anything. We just, we just preach the gospel and it'll happen. And that's true to a certain extent. One, you have to preach the gospel as it's written in the Bible. That is absolutely necessary. And in some cases, diversity does happen without a whole lot of intentionality. But at 13.7%, multi-ethnic churches, we might have to look hard and see if there is a gap between the principles that we believe and the practices that we live. 
Yes, focus on the truth. Get the doctrines right. But let us not be so naive as to think that right belief automatically leads to right practices. Let's understand sometimes that getting the, 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 the principles right may not always lead to doing the things we need to do that we can intentionally and unintentionally do things to put up barriers to the gospel. If even Peter did that, we can't expect that we would be immune. But I don't think it was simply a misunderstanding of the gospel and diversity that was going on here. I think there's something more. And in fact, the passage tells us that. Our second point is that diversity shows who you really fear. Look down at verse 12. It says, Before certain men came from James, he, meaning Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. It was fear that caused Peter to shrink back. Now let's think about this. It says, before certain men came from James. Well, who were these certain men from James? We're not quite sure. They could have been uh, men who were sent actually from James. James commissioned them and said, go to Antioch for some reason or purpose. Uh, come from James could mean something like they were associated or affiliated or followers of James, but they weren't there necessarily on his express orders. We're not quite sure. But what we do know is that they were from the circumcision party. Now the circumcision party, these are Jews who have converted to Christianity and now as Christianity goes out to the Gentile world, they say to the Gentiles, sure, you can be a Christian, you have to believe in Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. I mean, you want to be a real Christian, don't you? Well, all real Christians get circumcised. And they were pressing this on the Gentiles and they were adding it to the doctrine of justification by faith, they were essentially saying, if you want to be a real bona fide Christian, then you have to become culturally Jewish. You have to become like us. You have to conform to our culture and our tradition and our standards. Now, it says that Peter feared these men. We're not quite sure what Peter feared about these men. Maybe they were really big and strong. He didn't want to. Maybe he was intimidated. Maybe they uh, maybe he was afraid that they would go back to Jerusalem with a bad report and they'd go back to First Church Jerusalem and, and tell the elders, oh, you know, Peter, he's gone liberal. He's he's associating with them Gentiles and he's all willy nilly and loosey goosey about his doctrine. I, I, I don't know if he can be senior minister here anymore. We're not quite sure precisely what Peter feared about these men from the circumcision party, but we do know that the Bible says to fear God. And in this case, Peter feared man. You know, I think fear may be the most frequent excuse for failing to live out diversity in our churches. Because it still happens today. I, I go to a seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and we have all these rural churches that are very small these churches 
can't afford a full-time pastor or they can't find one, but one of the ways that uh, we seek to serve these churches is our students, many of them are training to be preachers, they'll go around to the, circuit, to the, to the churches and do what they call preach the circuit. As you can imagine, being you know in the country and probably much older members, they have what we would consider pretty outdated ideas about race. And so one of my friends, a fellow classmate who was white, he was scheduled to preach at one of these churches, and he was contacting an elder there and just getting the details all straight. And he, he asked the elder, hey, would it be okay if I bring a couple of my friends uh, so they can see me preach? And somehow in the course of the conversation, it came up that, that one of the student's friends was African-American. And the elder said, oh, you know, I don't have a problem with that, but, but I think our members might not be ready yet. Now we can give the pastor or the, the elder the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was trying to exercise wisdom. Maybe he did get it about the gospel and diversity, and he didn't want to try to drag the congregation too far too fast. But what a missed opportunity. What a missed opportunity to show how the gospel can break down racial and ethnic barriers. And we still wrestle with this fear of man instead of fearing God when we talk about the the gospel implications for diversity. And you can tell that when we say things like, oh, we, we can't plant a church in that part of town. It's too whatever. Or we can't reach those people. Or we couldn't possibly change our worship style or this aspect of the church. The, the, the people won't stand for that. Again, there is an element of wisdom that we need to exercise. We need to work with people where they are. But I wonder what gospel boldness would look like in these circumstances. I think that's what you see Paul exercising here is gospel boldness when it comes to diversity because when he saw Peter withdraw from the Gentiles, he didn't just let it slide. He didn't say, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. No, he confronted Peter to his face in front of everyone, showed himself an ally for the other, an ally for the outsider. What would our churches in the United States look like if we had more believers standing up with gospel boldness for the truth of the gospel that justification is by faith alone and you don't have to conform to any cultural standard? What might that percentage of multi-ethnic churches be? What might the witness in our communities be as unbelievers look at our churches and say, I don't know about who they worship or what they believe, but I do see love. I do see people coming together where in the world we're separate. I wonder what it would be like if we lived out that verse that says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is, after all, all about the gospel. Our third point tonight is that diversity is a gospel issue. Take a look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, 
meaning you eat with Gentiles and you don't follow the Jewish laws, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, meaning become circumcised? Now you know what the crucial phrase in this verse is, don't you? It says, not in step with the truth of the gospel. Isn't it interesting that, that, that Paul didn't say to Peter, you know, Peter, withdrawing from the Gentiles, that's, that's not very politically correct. You know, people are going to talk about you. He didn't say to Peter, you know, Peter, the demographics of Antioch are changing. And if we don't reach out to racial and ethnic minorities, our church isn't going to survive. We need these people to grow. No. When Paul confronts Peter, he says, brother, you're out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, what gospel is Paul talking about? I think you see it here. Look down at verses 15 and 16. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Justified. You're made right with God. You're put back into a right relationship with him. That comes through faith and faith alone. You don't have to add anything. In fact, you can't. I like the way John Piper puts it in his book, Bloodlines. He says this, since there is only one way for all people in the world to get right with God and to be God's children, namely by faith in Jesus Christ, Therefore, no ethnic distinctives can any longer be compelling separators of those who trust Christ. Justification by faith alone puts all of us on a level ground of utter dependence on grace. Peter and the circumcision party were adding works to justification by faith. They were telling the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. You need to become like us. Now, lest we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's understand that we add works to justification by faith, too. It just takes different forms. We add works when we say, oh, you have to dress a certain way to be one of us. We add works when we say, you have to speak a English a certain way to be one of us. We add works when we say, oh, you have to have these credentials or these qualifications or these letters behind your name to be one of us. We add works when we say, you got to vote for this party. You got to vote this way on this issue. We add works when we say, you must believe theology exactly the same way that I do and believe and practice worship exactly the same way that I do in order to be one of us. We add works with style of preaching and style of music. Really, anything that you can use as uh, a distinctive or an identity marker, we can make that into a work by adding it as a requirement to be a Christian. Well, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, aren't these just preferences? 
I go to this church because I like the style of preaching and I like the music and other people go to different churches because they like it there. Well, sure. We all have preferences and, and in and of themselves, they aren't evil, they aren't bad. But when those preferences become barriers to the gospel, when those preferences keep our churches segregated racially and ethnically, they are no longer preferences. They have become idols. In the church, in a healthy church, no person gets everything they prefer because we're all mutually submitting to one another, which means I lay down my rights for your sake and you lay down your rights for my sake, and that allows unity in the midst of diversity. This is sort of a personal issue for me. I don't approach these issues of diversity in the church abstractly. As an African American who goes to an evangelical Protestant church, I'm part of that 6%. And I remember 12 years ago was the first time I went to a church that had exegetical expository preaching. It's the kind of preaching you get week by week here at Grace Bible Church. It's where the leaders go verse by verse consecutively through books of the Bible and they preach the whole counsel of God. And immediately I was, I was gripped by this teaching. It was like I was hearing Christianity all over again. It was rich, it was deep, it was robust, it was, it was something you could chew on and it would nourish you and you could grow spiritually and I loved it. But at this church, I was the only African-American. And when I say the only African-American, I don't mean one of a few. <laughs> I mean the only African-American. And nobody called me names. Nobody said, you're not welcome here. Nobody put signs up over the drinking fountains. But I had the distinct impression that if I really wanted to be part of the community, I would have to be just like everyone else there. And so I found this tension in me between this, this great teaching and, and doctrine that I loved and this preaching, and yet feeling totally excluded culturally and racially. And so I've dedicated much of my energy to making sure that, that we have more churches that reflect the diversity of our country, the diversity of our communities, so people don't have to make that choice between great biblical teaching and feeling like they have a home and a place in the church. Everyone should have a home in the church. doesn't matter your race. doesn't matter your ethnicity. What matters is Christ. Wouldn't it be great if you had co-workers or family members or even strangers you encountered and you felt comfortable inviting them to your church? Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to say, oh, I'm not sure they would fit in in our congregation. Well, why, don't, why don't you try the church down the street? Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone, no matter where they were coming from, no matter their background, didn't have to give up non-essential cultural and, and racial identity markers when they entered the congregation because Christ is what's most important. Don't you want that kind of church? I know I do.
sounds kind of like a, a pipe dream, though. Kind of a pie-in-the-sky dream. Well, you know, maybe there are churches like that somewhere out there. Maybe it happens here and there, but, but we can't really have churches like that. It's, it's too hard. We live in the real world. People won't put up for that kind of thing. Well, if it's left up to us, yeah, that's the reality. But not if Jesus is in it. I mentioned earlier that Peter is called the rock. But do you know what comes right before that? Peter asks his disciples a question. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And remember how Peter responds. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus himself responds back to him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter's ability to get it right when it comes to the gospel and diversity is not what justified him. What justified Peter was his faith in Jesus Christ. Peter messed it up here. He got it wrong. It says that. It says he stood condemned. It says he was out of step with the truth of the gospel. But getting it right isn't what justified Peter. It was, it was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. It was faith in Jesus that justified Peter. And it's faith in Jesus that justifies you and I. You see, Jesus doesn't put up any barriers for us to come to him. He doesn't say, you got to clean up your life. You got to stop doing this and start doing that. And when you get your act together, you come to me and we'll talk. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I really favor this culture, so, so you got to change your language and your dress and everything about yourself, and when you conform to this, this mold, then you can come to me. No. Jesus asks you the same question that he asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? And anyone who can believe in their heart and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord is justified. By faith through his grace. And when we realize for ourselves that Jesus didn't put up any barriers, that all he requires is faith. When we realize the grace that Jesus has extended to us, that's when we can extend that same grace to others. And we can say along with Jesus, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to conform to any cultural standard. You just have to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're in. Everyone has a home in the church because anyone who Christ calls can be justified by faith. And when we realize that, that it doesn't take you being like me or me being like you, but it takes us believing in the same Savior, Jesus Christ as Lord. That's when our churches start to become more diverse. That's when the gospel leads us to diversity. May we see that day. Let's pray. Holy and Heavenly Father, there is something deep within our hearts that longs for the picture 
in Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9 that says people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered around your throne. But Lord, I pray we don't have to wait until heaven to see that. I pray that we can begin to move towards that vision even now right here on earth. And I pray for this church, Lord, this congregation, that you would work in the hearts of many to understand that, that there can be gaps between principles and practices, that we need to fear God and not man when it comes to diversity. And that diversity isn't just a, a trendiness thing or a sociological issue, but is a gospel issue. And I pray that this church would continue to move in that direction and that it would rebound to your glory and that more and more people, all kinds of people, would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray this in the name of your Son.